0: Thank you so much choir and Dan instrumentalists for beautiful worship this morning. I remind you to be back tonight. The choir loft will be overflowing. We'll have an orchestra and it will be our beautiful Easter music. Be back tonight at at six o'clock. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We'll be looking at particular passages in Mark 14 and in Mark 15. So if you'd open, you open up your Bibles there to Mark 14, around verse 33, we'll begin in, in just a moment. What is the cross all about? Author Frederick Beatner remembers that he and his brother were just little boys growing up in Washington, D.C. They had a particular nurse who cared for them on a daily basis. And funny what kids remember, they remember that she had false teeth, which she could drop in a moment's notice for their entertainment. (laughs) Oddly enough, he also remembers that when she put them to bed every night, she taught them to sing a song, the old rugged cross. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, an emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. They sang it, Bigner remembers, before either of them had any idea what a hymn was, or what a cross was, or why it was something, a cross, that you'd want to sing about at night. No sermon can completely capture the cross that we sing about in the dark. But let's look at a few of the highlights of the passion narrative in Mark's Gospel. Obedience is the word that best captures Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives following the celebration of the Lord's Supper and leaving nine behind, Jesus takes the usual three, Peter, James, and John, and goes deeper into the Garden and asks them to pray. And this is Jesus' most human episode in all the Gospel of Mark. He seems so much human like here compared to when he's commanding the wind and the waves and Mark are being transfigured into glowing white garments or turning over the tables in the temple. I'm quoting scripture. Well, look at verse 33. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. The word here for distressed is the only time that it's used in the whole New Testament of Jesus. It is the most disturbing word that you could think of. He is troubled. He is distraught is a good translation. It has all the sense of horror and fear and suffering one would imagine. Mark openly reveals the humanity of Jesus as he thinks about the cross that awaits him. And no way does Jesus stoically set his face towards Jerusalem without emotion. No, Mark tells us here in 33, he was distressed. He was was troubled. Verse 34. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. I am deeply grieving the cross, Jesus says. He went a little beyond them and he fell to the ground and began to pray. Look at the the imagery here. He falls to the ground, distraught over the cross. Began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. While the dozing disciples missed the intensity of their Messiah, Jesus asked his Abba, his Father, to remove the cup from him, if possible. Make no mistake about it, there's no way to pretty it up. The cup in Scripture is the pouring out of the wrath of God. It's so in Jeremiah, it's so in Isaiah, it's so in Ezekiel, it's so in Revelation, the cup is the wrath of God. God, if there's any way that I can... Skip your wrath and bring salvation to your creation. Let's come up with that plan, but not what I need, but what you need, oh God. Let's outline our passage with this. First of all, the kiss of betrayal in 1443 through 46. Look at 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, this is the one, seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming, immediately he went to him, saying, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him, and they seized him Jesus has been praying and now we have the kiss of betrayal that if the cup could pass it would pass and now Gethsemane is invaded by a mob carrying clubs and sticks and swords they have been sent by the Sanhedrin for one purpose and one one purpose only to take hold to arrest Jesus Other writers tell us of instances where the Sanhedrin would hire the thugs in the market to go and apprehend someone from them. And as Jesus had predicted earlier in 1418, there would be one who would betray him. And Judas comes up and gives him a kiss, which is normally a Reverence greeting from a student to a teacher, from a disciple to a rabbi, but in this time it is the kiss of betrayal. It is a treachery that has been grieved and mourned for 2,000 years. The scene becomes all the more troubling when we remember that Jesus chose and appointed the twelve, and one is a betrayer. The next part of the outline is the feeble defense in 47, but a certain one of those stood by his, drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Forming a a feeble defense, one of the followers of Jesus draws his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's slave. And another gospel writer, John, tells us that that one is Peter and Malchus is a servant who has his ear sliced off. In fact, another gospel writer, Luke, tells us that Jesus is so kind as to restore the ear in a miracle. Perhaps Peter is anxious to show Jesus that though the others may flee, that he will fight. He will give his life for his Lord, like he said. He draws the sword and he slices the ear of Malchus. The next part of the story is the armed aggression in 48 and 49. The armed aggression. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has happened that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus notes the irony of the aggression of his attackers Why are you coming to the garden with swords and clubs? I was there in the temple teaching, and you could have arrested me then. Why at nighttime, and why now, and why like this? I haven't been hiding, he's saying. You've treated me like, the word robber is best translated, an insurrectionist, someone who's trying to overturn the Roman government. A rebel, you're treating me like a rebel, he says. He notices how ridiculous their use of force is against him, a mere rabbi, a teacher with no army. He tells them it has all happened that Scripture might be fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 12, he was numbered among the transgressors. The arrest of the aggressors. The next section is the flight of the disciples, 50 through 52. Look at this passage. And they all left him and fled. And a certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him, but he left the linen sheet behind and escaped naked. This account involves the fleeing of all the disciples. Jesus had said earlier in 1427, when the shepherd is struck down, the sheep will scatter. And they said, every one of them, I don't care what everybody else does. I will be by your side. They all left him and fled. And now Mark goes from the general, they all left him and fled to the specific a story about a young man who has on nothing but a robe. And when they try to grab him as they're arresting Jesus, he works his way out of his robe, and he flees naked so, so earnestly, wanting to distance himself from the Messiah, he's willing to shed his robe to escape. Who is the young man in the robe? There there are various understandings of this. Would you know that Mark is the only gospel writer, the only evangelist to tell us about the young man who is robbed of his robe as he tries to flee naked? And since Mark is the only one to tell us about it, some see this as a a literary masterstroke where the author identifies himself. And this is none other than John Mark himself, the young man. This is his signature on the book. It's a signature of remorse that when everybody left him and fled, Mark is saying, and I did too, and I did too. Others see it as an interpretation of Amos when it says that the judgment will be so harsh in those days that even the brave and the valiant and the young. Amos 2.16, that even the bravest and youngest will flee of the soldiers. It's not necessarily one or the other. Perhaps it's both, and Mark is interpreting Amos 2 within himself as the one we thought would be brave, now flees the next portion, 15, 1 through 5, the claim to be king. Look at chapter 15 in verse 1. And early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation and binding Jesus. They led him away and delivered him up to Pilate. And Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? It is. It is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly, and Pilate was questioning him, saying, "Don't you make any answer? You see how many charges they bring against you?" But Jesus made no further answer, and Pilate was amazed. Following the appearance in the end of 14 before the Jewish Sanhedrin and Peter's trio of denials, now Jesus finds himself at last presented to a pagan authority. The prior kangaroo court of the Sanhedrin had tried to find witnesses against Jesus, something about the temple, but the the witnesses were inconsistent. And so they take him now to Pilate because they had no authority for the death penalty. Peter, moreover, has denied our Lord by now. The third denial was the worst. He swore he didn't know him. He cursed. And the cock crows the second time, and Peter has denied thrice, and Peter begins to weep, 1472. Following that trumped-up trial, now the Jewish authorities and, and 15 have bound Jesus, and they've taken him before Pilate. Pilate poses the pertinent question to the prisoner. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Normally, Pilate would reside in Caesarea on the Mediterranean but because it was Passover and the pilgrims were present in Jerusalem. He was there. And the New Testament presents Pilate as a weak and indecisive man who can't make a decision and gives in to the crowd, but I don't want you to see him that way. Philo of Alexandria and Josephus combine ancient voices and tell us that Pilate is cruel. He is harsh. He did not mind killing anyone over nothing. In fact, Luke tells us that he mixed the blood of the Galileans with their sacrifices. Don't mistake Pilate as weak minded. He's really perplexed here, but he is a cruel governor. He wouldn't have cared about blasphemy. If this was a a Jewish argument, no big deal to Pilate. But if Jesus was saying that he was some sort of new earthly king, king of the Jews, then it was attack against the Roman government that Pilate defended. And so we ask, it's emphatic personal pronoun. Are, Are you, someone like you, the king of the Jews? In fact, One translator says it this way, that Pilate so thought the presence of the prince would be more impressive that he said, you, the king of the Jews, you got to be kidding. You, the likes of you, Rabbi, you're the new king we're supposed to be afraid of, the likes of you? Is this a joke? Perhaps Pilate is saying. Jesus replies, it is as you say. The fact that he was the Jewish anointed one, the Jewish Messiah, he was a king, but not in a political earthly way, in a cosmic grander way. And so he both affirms the accusation of Pilate and yet denies it at the same time. His enigmatic response causes Pilate to look to the Jews for more accusations and they began to pile them on and Luke's gospel gives them better than Mark. He says, they said this Jesus is starting riots all over Jerusalem and he tells us we shouldn't pay our, our taxes to Rome and he says that he is the new king and not Caesar. Pilate turns back to Jesus, well, now what do you say? Jesus says, nothing. The fact that there was no coherent defense would mean almost de facto that Pilate would have to call him guilty and crucify him. But he sees in 1510 that they they have envy in their eyes, and so he tries. The next section is the pardon of one prisoner, 6 through 15. Apparently, the governor at the Passover had a custom that he would release one prisoner of the people's choice, a popular choice, release that one to the Jews. Now, there is no evidence outside of the biblical witness that this ever took place, but it seems completely probable. In what a better way, throw them a bone every now and then, give them one prisoner, make them feel like they have some power, and so he asked them, Do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? In fact, there are some ancient manuscripts in Matthew very good ancient manuscripts that say Barabbas' name is, he's called in those manuscripts, seldom found in a translation, Jesus Barabbas. Jesus Bar Abba. Jesus the Son of the Father. Or Jesus the Christ. So maybe Pilate posed the question this way. Well, which one do you want? It's the custom time. Do you want Jesus, Son of the Father, or do you want Jesus, the Christ? In fact, he says it in such a way as to promote the release of the Christ. You want me to release the Christ to you? No, they want Barabbas. Out of reverence for Jesus, the Christ, through the years, the scribes omitted the the relationship of the name Jesus with Barabbas because they didn't want us to be confused as readers and they didn't want to dishonor the real Jesus. Which one? Which Jesus do you want to go free? Pilate thought he would get Jesus off with the people, but he'd failed to realize the fervency of the riot at Passover and the fickleness of the people. And imagine it this way. If the crowd has to choose between the Roman governor and their own Jewish high court, they're never going to side with Pilate. And the fact that Pilate was pushing Jesus Christ probably pushed the people over They incited the riot against Jesus the Christ. He makes one more attempt. What do you want me to do? Look at verse 14. What evil has he done? But they shouted once more Crucify him! Crucify him! What evil has he done? Pilate's confused. But he wishes to satisfy the multitude. And he released Barabbas for them, verse 15. And after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him over to be crucified. So many times we in our own minds have made the crucifixion churchy, have we not? What we see this morning in the Gospel of Mark is a real Jesus distraught in anguish, overwhelmed by the cross. He falls down to the ground. He cries out to the Father, Oh God, if there's any other way besides the cup of your wrath, may it be that way. There's a kangaroo court. His disciples all flee, one even naked, to get away from him. He stands before Pilate, the now finally a pagan authority, and he's asked the question, the likes of you, are you the new king? And Jesus says, it is as you say. Kathy Tricoli tells about a game she plays with her niece, Gina. It's the I love you game. She says to Gina, Gina's busy playing on the ground with her toys. She says, Gina, I love you all the way. Gina stops and looks up to play the game. All the way to where? Kathy says, Gina, I love you all the way. To the sky. Gina's not going to be outdone by her aunt in this love contest. Who loves who the most? Oh, yeah, yeah. You love me all the way to the sky? Well, I love you all the way to the ocean. Kathy decides she's going to one up it a little bit. Well, Gina, you might love me all the way to the ocean, but I love you all the way to heaven. It's our last shot. Gina's really going to give it her best. She ponders it through and she says, Well, yeah, yeah, you love me all the way to heaven, but I tell you what, I love you. I, I love you. I love you all the way to Kmart to the toy department. That's how much I love you. That was the biggest, best kind of love our little mind could imagine. What if you played the I love you game with Jesus? Jesus, I love you all the way. We'd all fill it in with something different. And he would respond I love you all the way to the cross. Let us pray. God, before our eyes and ears this morning, we're reminded of the brutality of the crucifixion, the horror our Christ endured, the terrible cup of the wrath of God that he was made to drink. And Father, we're so grateful that He loved us all the way, all the way to the cross.
1: On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain, so I'll check. I lay down, I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday, and exchange it someday. And exchange it someday for a crown.
0: Maybe you're here today and this is your Passion Week to proclaim the Lordship of Christ Jesus in your life. Maybe this is your year to say, I understand what he did for me, and I want to make him my Lord. Maybe this is your year to have a church family and be a part of First Baptist San Marillo. I'll be here at the front. We'd invite you to come. 481, stand together as we sing. I'll meet you.